With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Don't let the mysteries of life scare you away. Instead, ask Altucher. Here's James Altucher. So I have Nick Morgan with me, who is the author of the excellent book, Power Cues, The Subtle Science of Leading Groups, Persuading Others, and Maximizing Your Personal Impact. Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing great, James. How are you? Good. And we were discussing earlier, you're trying to decide whether to go to the, the beach or not. Is that uh, what you do in between, like, power cues? <laughs> well, July and August, absolutely, whenever I can. That or that or the bike. You know, I always find don't you find the beach to be just like really hot and boring? Like aren't you like really tired after the beach? <laughs> I'm actually a shade lover, so the beach for me is is a kind of uh torment. I know I need the vitamin D. I'd love to get my toes in the sand, but uh I have to figure out a way to hide under a an umbrella or something so I don't get sunburned. I'm one of those people that sunburns instantly. Yeah, so that's why I just – I'll send the kids to the beach, but as long as they don't drown and because then I'd feel guilty. I, yeah, probably. They could do what they want, then I just stay home. But uh, I want to talk about your book, which is basically – you know, I do a lot of public speaking. I also do a lot of presenting, and a lot of people I know do a lot of you know, sales presenting or even dinner meetings or, or parties or whatever. And I'm always curious if it's really true – this idea that how you stand and how you uh, use your body affects the way, even on a subconscious level, people think about you. And, and I don't know what the research says on this. And your book is about this. So I wanted to, to chat about it. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, the, the bad news, James, is that, yes, how you stand and, and how you project yourself does affect the outcome of any communication. And the reason it's powerful is it is mostly unconscious. So what but, happens is our unconscious minds communicate with each other, and we do it by means of uh, visual signals through our body language. So, so there's a second conversation going on even while you and I are chatting away, let's say, if we were face-to-face. Uh, there'd be a second conversation going on, a, a body language conversation, in which we're sorting out all kinds of interesting things. And we're only dimly aware of that. Uh, we're aware of extremes of body language when that happens and when people behave strangely, we notice their body language. But mostly we don't. Mostly it's our unconscious mind that handles that chore. So, so that's so, why it's powerful. So so here's, here's the question. The, the first question I have is, Let's say I know these power cues, like how to how to hold my body, or what or what my body, what messages my body might be sending, depending on how I'm standing or whatever. If I'm just doing it to send those messages, will your unconscious know that I'm like faking it? Can you fake it till you make it? <laughs> that's a that's a slightly more complicated. It's a good question. It's slightly more complicated answer. The we are very good at the unconscious level at detecting BS. We're, we're very good. And the way we do that is we, we match what the person is saying with their body language. 
And if the two don't match up in some way, we're very quick to detect that there's a mismatch. And so what happens is uh, our issue is do we trust that person? That's the basic question, one of the most important basic questions we're asking ourselves. Uh, And our short-term measure of trust is consistency. So if somebody comes up to you and smiles and says, I'm really glad to uh, meet you, and then punches you in the jaw, that's inconsistent. You don't trust them. Um, And on a subtler level, that's what we're doing with uh, our unconscious read of your body language. So when you ask, is it possible to fake it? Um, The answer is, unless you're a very good actor, probably not, because you're going to give away your true feeling with your uh, body language. So even if I'm like, I'm just going to take a... Uh, an obvious example, like even if I'm standing up straight and acting confident and doing everything right, but I'm maybe saying things that make you perceive me as not so confident, you'll whatever I'm doing with my body won't really help me that much. Well, yes. I mean, I hesitate only because there is some evidence that shows that if you stand confidently, then you not only send a message to other people that you may be confident, subject to testing, um, but you also send a message to yourself that you're feeling a little more confident than if you stand in a slouched, defeatist, defensive-looking way. Um, And so you may kind of talk yourself into it a little bit. The evidence on that is mixed, uh, but uh, there is some evidence that shows that, that that may be the case. So it doesn't hurt, let's put it that way. But the, the, to stand confidently. But the better thing to do is to find out and talk to your unconscious mind and find out if you are lacking confidence, why, and do something about that. So, so I want to ask you specifically about the, the seven power cues that you mentioned in the book mm-hmm. and, and, and how they can help me. But how did you get interested in this? Like, were you feeling like you needed to persuade people in some extra way? Like, did you want to have like an extra power over the people you, you communicated with? Well, I tell the story in the book. The, the way it all began was uh, I was uh, tobogganing with some friends when I was about 17, uh, and I fractured my skull in a tobogganing accident. Uh, and I uh, was in a coma for about 10 days. When I woke up, um, they give you tests to see if you, your brains are still intact, and I passed the basic IQ test. But they didn't ask me, and I didn't know how to vocalize, that I had lost the ability to do what we can all do easily, which is read other people that we know well. So if you look at your spouse or close friends or colleagues, you can tell if they're really angry or really happy uh, because uh, you know their body language signals. You've gotten used to them. And I could no longer do that. And so I had to teach myself consciously to figure out how to read other people. You can imagine at age 17, it was really hard because everything anybody says at age 17 is either ironic or a joke. Um, and, and so uh, I couldn't – they were saying one thing and obviously not meaning it, and I kept getting the signals wrong because I just heard what they said. So I, I didn't get the cues from the body language, the lifting of the eyebrow or the slight sneer that says I don't mean what I'm saying. And so I had to relearn all that, uh, and that's where I got my interest in body language. Did it make you kind of a, a social outcast at first? Like, did everyone kind of like think you were this weird guy who never picked up on any cues? Oh, completely. And it didn't help also that I had my head shaved and was wearing this kind of um, 
giant bandage on my head for a long time. If you want to look like an alien, go walking through a high school with a bandage on your head and an inability to read other people. I was a complete outcast. They couldn't at least give you an eye patch? Like an eye patch would be kind of cool. I wish that was – that's a brilliant idea. I wish they had. I could have been a pirate. Right. But that didn't happen. No, I was just an outcast. So like like what does it mean not being able to read people? Like let's say um, a guy was yelling at you. Would you not perceive that as anger? Well, I could – if somebody was obviously furious and yelling and I could pick up in the language what was going on, then I wouldn't have any trouble decoding that. Um, I'd be slow on the uptake. Most people get that instantly. They feel the anger before they hear it. But, but uh, it was, it's the subtler things. It's the conversation with a friend in which the friend says, hey, you look great. And the friend means you look like uh, crap, but you don't pick up on that because you don't get the, like I say, the twist of the lip or the uh, ironic hitch of the eyebrow or that kind of thing. So it was more of that than the kind of really big obvious ones. So even though you ended up doing a a full study of body language after that, um, do you think just, just neural plasticity in general, do you think your brain over time learned how to pick up on those cues again? That's my guess, yes, that, uh, that whatever was bruised eventually healed, and I got better, and I tried really hard, too. So, obviously, uh, self, I was teaching myself, but there was some, some combination of natural healing, I would suggest, and, 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 yeah, and neuroplasticity. That's something we know a lot more about now. It's very cool. The idea that the brain can change, can heal itself, can, uh, can learn new things is, is uh, very, very exciting. So, so... For you personally, which of these power cues has been the most powerful? Like what, what have you experienced in your life using these that's really worked and that people can use? And then we can talk about all seven. But I want to hear for you, for you what personally has worked. The one I've used that's the most sort of Zvengali uh, like if you will, I can, I can give you in a, in a good example a story of uh, – I'd been working at a consulting company. Uh, this was in the 90s, and the company was growing great guns, and they'd hired me in a fit of enthusiasm along with a lot of other people. And then they hit a wall and lost money, and so they laid us all off. And I had a mortgage and a couple of kids, so I wanted another job. That, and, it, and it so happened as I was returning home with my little cardboard box of possessions that uh, the phone rang, and it was another consulting company that had got the word because it's a small world consulting that uh, they were laying people off, and they said, would you come for an interview? I said, sure, I needed the job. So I went up to Boston, where the company was based, and met the, uh, the guy who was thinking about hiring me at a local restaurant uh, called Legal Seafoods. Any of, any of your fans who, are in, uh, who know Boston will know that it's a great little chain of, of uh, seafood restaurants. And... And we're going to sit down and order from the menu. And he says, no, don't bring Mr. Morgan any menus. Just bring him the largest lobster that you have. And my reaction was, oh, crap. <laughs> it's hard to eat lobster with a tie on. I'd put on the tie and the suit for the job interview. And well, I you thought, had to, like, crack open the lobster and everything? Yeah, and I thought this is a, some test to see if I've got the cool, you know, not to mess up my tie. And I had been... I grew up in, in uh, the Boston area, but I've been living away for a long time. And what I didn't know was uh, I, I remembered how to eat a lobster, but I didn't realize that I'd become allergic to them in the meantime. Oh, no. And, and so I start, start eating the lobster, 
and my throat starts closing. I start to choke. And I understand I really wanted the job. I need I had the mortgage, the kids. <laughs> I really needed that job. So I, and, and I didn't feel, for some reason, I should have just said, hey, I'm choking. We've got to do something different here. For some reason, I didn't feel empowered to do that. I was stupid. But anyway, I went to the bathroom, stuck two fingers down my throat, threw up and came back. And now, of course, I'm just pushing the lobster around on the plate, right? I'm not eating it. And pretty soon he notices and says, there's just something wrong with this magnificent lobster that I've ordered for you. And I say, no, no, it's fine. I start eating a little bit again. My throat starts closing again. I start choking. I excuse myself to go to the bathroom. I do the same procedure again. I come back. I did this about three times. And I just got so furious at the guy. Unreasonably, he didn't know what was going on. But uh, I was so angry at the whole situation that I thought, I'm going to use a body language trick to make sure I get the job. And the body language trick, if you will, is... You mirror somebody. We naturally mirror each other uh, when we like a person or trust that person. So that is, we do the same. If, if you reach and screech, scratch your nose, I'll reach and scratch my nose at the same time with a slight lag, uh, barely perceptible lag. Right. So that's just a very simple example. So we mirror each other when we're in love with somebody or when we're good friends or when we're trusted colleagues. It's, it's basically a statement of that we're aligned with this person, we, we agree with them, we trust them. So I started mirroring in order to build trust. And then after about 15 minutes of mirroring him vigorously, uh, in between not eating bites of the lobster, I, uh, then I started leading him. I started making suggestions of gestures, and he started mirroring me. And so at that point, I knew that I'd got him. So, so what do you mean? How do you make a suggestion of a gesture? Well, so, for example, we're sitting there across from each other, and, and my hands are down at the knife and fork level. And so I put down the knife and fork, and I re raise my hand and, and uh, just touch my forehead with it. And sure enough, he raised his hand and touched his forehead. How did you have so, the confidence that he was going to do that after you had been mirroring him for 15 minutes? Now you're sort of subconsciously telling him to mirror you. How, how did you have the yeah. confidence to know he would start doing that? I didn't. It was a test, but I was pretty confident because um, – he had was in the situation where this was a job interview. He wanted to find me a successful candidate, right? Because then that means his work is done. So his question to me is, can I trust you or not? That's the basic question that uh, a job interviewer is looking to answer from the job interviewee, the, the body language question. Um, and so he wanted to get a yes to that because that meant his work was done. So by mirroring him, I just increased the strength of that connection and, and I, I increased the message that, hey, you can trust me. I'm a nice guy. I'm just like you. Look, I'm mirroring you. <laughs> so it's almost like the mirroring is like depositing in a bank account. And after 15 minutes, you felt enough was deposited that you could start making a withdrawal. Yes, yes, given that that was the question of the evening. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. It's a nice way to put it, actually. I like that. And, and was there ever any worry that he might notice you were mirroring him? You know, it's funny. People always ask that when I talk about mirroring. They say, isn't the other person going to notice? Because suddenly you're paying attention to body language. But uh, the, the, the funny answer to that is people never notice, unless, of course, you're really clumsy at it, too obvious. Um, you move too fast or you mirror every tiny little twitch, right? But um, if you do it slowly and subtly and gently, it takes a little practice. But if you do it in a way that's that's uh, fairly subtle, nobody ever notices. And the reason for that is not that we're stupid, but that we don't. Our minds are not uh, trained to look at body language per se. What we care about is what that body language tells us. 
and that's what our unconscious minds are reading all the time. So if, if uh, I raise my hand to my forehead and the job interviewer does the same thing, then what we tell each other is that um, we're mirroring each other's behavior. We don't uh, unconsciously. Uh, we don't think, oh, he's just raised his hand to his forehead. That means he's got a headache or something like that. We don't think about it consciously. We just de decode the gesture for what it means for us. So, okay, so did you, did you get the job? What happened next? I got the job. And uh, he was never aware. I'm assuming you did a good job. Like, did they become a good client? Yep. Um, and they were a fabulous client. And, and uh, I mean, I worked for them for a couple of years. And then I still actually have uh, friends and clients from that company uh, low these many years later. So it turned out to be a great place to work. So that's great. So, so we have mirroring, we have then leading. Mm -hmm. um, and then from the leading, were, were you, did you kind of let him make the decision to hire you or did you say, or did you lead even more and say, okay, I'm a good candidate? Like, did you kind of dominate the conversation at that point? Well, uh, what I did toward the end of the conversation uh, was I started asking him gently questions that were, was test, to test the uh, connection. So I said something on the order of, so, it seems like we have a good fit here. Uh, how soon are you going to make the offer? So I was asking. Would you laugh, or would you, or were you asking serious? Were you asking it seriously? No, that was serious. I mean, I, I may, I, I actually don't remember now. I might have done it with a kind of half smile or something, but I was perfectly serious about that. So. Right. So it's almost like you turned the leading into leading questions. Yes, although I would say based on my uh, research and years of working with people, that the, the body language is more important than the content at that point. Okay. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, Although the leading questions allows him to say an easy yes. Yeah, like exactly. In, instead, of, instead of making him make you an offer, all he had to do was say an, a yes to you. Exactly. Yeah. I made, I made it as easy as I could for him. Right. So, so what's um? So, th so those are two techniques: the mirroring and the leading. What are what are some others that have used or you've seen used? Well, one of the subtler ones, which I'm really fascinated by, uh, and I work a lot with clients on, is the voice. It turns out that, and and this is this is such counterintuitive research. It really surprises people when they hear about it. So, uh, but fasten your seatbelts here. So it turns out when people get together in a room, let's imagine a group of colleagues, they all work for the same company, they're forming a new team. They get together in the room. Uh, maybe there's a chairman already convening the meeting. But within about five or ten minutes, what happens is they elect a leader unconsciously with their voices. And this sounds strange. How do they do that? Every voice, every human voice, um, if you think of it like a musical instrument, uh, and those of your audience who understand uh, music and how it works will, will get this a little easier than those who don't, but um, every, every musical note, every vocal note has the pitch at which you're speaking, and then it has overtones over that and undertones. And those overtones and undertones and the pitch all combine together to give us an impression of the sound that you're making or that I'm making or that a trumpet makes or a guitar makes. And what we hear predominantly is the very pitch that you're speaking at or that the trumpet is playing the note at. 
But uh, what gives it that quality of sound that enables us to tell it apart from one person or another or one instrument or another are the overtones and undertones. Now, it turns out, and this is the eerie part, that when we get people together in a room, they elect a leader by matching their undertones to to the leaders. And they're completely unaware of this. And yet, when we, you can think about this intuitively. You can think about, yeah, there was somebody in that room who, when he spoke, he sounded confident. Or when she made a point, everybody listened and nodded, right? It's that kind of voice. It's that voice that sounds authoritative. And so what I do is I work with clients to make their voices sound more like that. I don't really understand. Like, what, what is an undertone? Like, what, what's the undertone of my voice? Well, so uh, you're speaking at a certain pitch. If you, when you said the word voice there, if you elongated the vowels at voice we could find that note on a piano and that would be like a g below middle c i'm making that up because i don't have perfect pitch i don't know okay but it would be a certain pitch okay now in addition to that pitch what enables you to tell your voice from mine and mine from yours is that at um, a fifth and a fourth and an octave below that basic pitch that you're hearing there is a faint echo of that note that's also sounding at the same time. And the, the individual makeup of those echoes, if you will, at different lower and higher pitches are what together add up to the quality of sound that your voice has or my voice has or a guitar has or a piano has or a trumpet has. So, so how do you make your voice the leader voice? Like you said, so everybody does match the leader, but how do I know, like how, how can I become the leader in a room? That's the right question, and that's what I work with clients on. And the answer is it turns out that at a certain pitch within your range, so you have a low note that you can comfortably hum and a high note that you can comfortably hum. You can go from very low to very high, right? And there's a range. Everybody has a slightly different range. But it turns out that a pitch a quarter of the way up from the bottom of your range is the point at which your voice sounds most like a leader. I see. So I should talk a little bit lower, but not too low. Not too low. Not at the very bottom of your range. Sometimes people try to make their voices sound lower because the shortcut that we use for this leadership voice um, is – you see people pushing their voices lower to try to sound more manly or something – if, if it's a couple of men talking or a group of men talking, for example. Um, yeah, so you don't want to be at the very bottom of your range because then your voice gets all gravelly and it loses that authoritative pitch. But this, this makes intuitive sense if you think about it because the, the, uh, the, what happens to the pitch of your voice, um, you mentioned your kids, and God forbid that one of them should start drowning uh, at, when you're at the beach. But... Uh, if you were shouting to a kid who was getting into trouble on the water, what would happen to your voice? Uh, yeah, it would go a little bit lower and stern. I'd be stern. Well, and then if you really panicked, where would it go? Then it might go high pitch. Yeah, it would go way up. And so the higher your voice goes within your range, the more of a panic message you send. Roughly, broadly speaking, the lower it goes, the more of an I'm in charge. And to your point, at first, if you were trying to get uh, little James Jr. out of the water, you'd go, James, you know, you make your voice as deep as possible to sound more authoritative. It's not until you panic that your voice starts going up. So we, we broadly and sort of intuitively get this, 
voices on the low end of the, of the register sound more in charge, on the high end of your range sound less in charge, more panicked. But this is about finding the precise note that where you speak at your voice is strongest and most authoritative. And people say, yes, sir, when you speak at that pitch. So whoever's doing that in a room, whoever's the closest to one quarter above their bottom note, say, uh, that person, will, everybody will naturally gravitate to match their uh, undertones with them. Yeah, and they also have to not be, I imagine, speaking complete rubbish, but it doesn't seem to matter too much what they say. It's more about that, that tone of voice, because that's what we do. We want to follow the voice that sounds like it's confident that it's in charge. So what, this, what, this is the Ronald Reagan voice, as I call it. That's really funny because that's true. And he was a trained, of course, voice actor. Right, exactly. He did radio for, what, 20 years or something before he became a politician. So what would, give, give me an example. What, what's, your, what's your, like, commanding voice? Uh, well, it's about down here. And so it's when I'm uh, really sounding in charge, James, I'll say, James, if I were giving you investment advice, I'd say it's too late to buy Amazon because the New York Times has already dished Amazon and, and – uh, uh, the bloom is off that rose. I don't know. I'm making All right, that that's up. good. <laughs> I like that. This I, it, it, this does have this Svengali like feel to it that there are these cues that, according to scientific research, work to yes. give you this edge. It's almost like a superpower a little bit. It is, and and the the important thing to say is that this is about becoming your best self. Uh, so it's not like. People are going to jump off buildings or into the paths of oncoming cars because you tell them to in an authoritative voice. It's just that you'll increase your natural leadership ability. You'll increase the tendency that people take you seriously and listen to you in a meeting. It's not. Uh, it, this isn't like uh, Hogwarts magic. This right. is, isn't about waving. And so it's important that people understand that. But what it is, it's about showing up with your best self. And there are a lot of people, for example who in the workplace spend a lot of time sitting down these days working at computers and sitting on airplanes and whatnot. And when you, when you do a lot of sitting, your voice tends to go up inside your head and it tends to go into your nose. And so it has a more nasal sound. It gets higher and higher. And over time, you're sounding less and less authoritative. Um, and your voice isn't in that nice, deep place where it should be and you were people will say yes sir no sir so it's about learning that uh, how to control your your voice in the in the modern world where there are a lot of things that are pitted against a great sounding voice it's really funny because when i do public speaking i feel like my voice starts to get higher and higher as i get tired and mm. uh i gotta remember that but okay after voice what's another one well, the, uh, one of the things that I like to do is, uh, is to use a trick that – and trick is maybe a loaded term, but uh, that I learned first when I was doing some research with some lawyers. Uh, this was about 15 years ago, early in my career, and I had a chance to work with some teams of lawyers who wanted body language help. Um, and so we tried out various uh, – uh, things, the, the pre prevailing wisdom at that point amongst this group of lawyers was that you should be like Jimmy Stewart. You should put your hands in your pocket and kind of put your head down and stroll around, be in a sort of an aw shucks country lawyer. And that would be, that would be uh, disarming and the juries would trust you because you'd be like one of them. And 
I thought that was bad on a number of levels, but mainly because when you put your hands in your pockets, it looks like you're hiding something. And so what I coached half the lawyers to do was to take the hands out of the pockets and hold them out toward the jury in what we call the Jesus gesture in the in the trade, which is the, the gesture that a, a preacher or pastor uses when he turns uh, to the uh, to the altar and says, let us pray. He, what he does is he uh, takes out his, his hands, holds them about waist high and just a little wider than the waist, and you put your palms up because you're showing that you're open to God is the idea. So that's why it's called the Jesus gesture. Um, and so I coached this one, half of the lawyers to use this open hand gesture, uh, and their acquittal rates, they were, they were arguing for the defense, their acquittal rates immediately went up. And then all the lawyers wanted to, in this group wanted to do it. And so we had to end the experiment because they, of course, wanted that edge immediately. So they all stopped putting their hands in their pockets and started what we call displaying the palms. And it's, uh, again, a very subtle thing. But what it says is, I'm open, you can trust me. That's really interesting. Okay, well, uh, I... I so the next time you watch a... a a lawyer summing up for the jury. Watch what he does with his hands, because a lot of the effect he's going to have or she's going to have with that jury depends on how open they are with their hands. Now, if I'm too open, could that be aggressive? Like, you know, an ape that's sort of like exposing his chest to his his victim? Uh, that's interesting. There's, the, there's a different element that comes into play there. We're very quick to, to uh, evaluate how close you are and how far away you are. So if you open up, but you're moving quickly in a threatening way toward me, then I'm going to perceive that as, as threatening, obviously. Um, so our ability to measure the distance between each other, of course, that comes down to survival in, at some, in some ancient time period. Um, and so we're very good at that. We can measure as little as half an inch movement toward us and away from us hmm. as a sign of interest or disinterest. And so uh, you want to move toward people to increase trust, but you want to do it slowly and carefully so that you don't threaten them. It doesn't look like you're attacking them. So what's uh, – I, I hate to keep asking like a, like it's a menu items, but what's another power cue I could use? I, I need all the help I can get. <laughs> well, the, uh, the second power cue is uh, comes as an answer to the question, how do you show up when you enter a room? Uh, and there, it's about standing up like your grandmother, if you had a grandmother like mine, told you to do, uh, which is kind of like a soldier, only without all the tension. Um, standing up straight is a, is, is a good way of signaling confidence. And a quick way to do that is to just, before you go into a room, uh, just find a wall, a vertical wall, and just back up against it to check that your head, your butt, and, your, and the heels are all against the wall behind you. And then if you do that, you're standing up straight. If you do that, you'll be surprised at how weird and straight and, and tall that feels. And that's because most of us go around in a slump most of the time. And when I tell people about this, they go, oh, not me. I've got good posture. And then I point to them. I say, look, you're holding that cell phone. What are you doing with that cell phone? And they hold the cell phone out in front of them, and they put their head down to look at it. And so they're immediately in this slouched head forward posture. 
which radiates lack of confidence to other people. It's not what you intend, but that's what you radiate to other people. And so that's a very simple one you can do before you walk into the room. Put down the cell phone, stand up straight, walk in. You'll look a lot more confident, like you're in charge of the situation, than if you don't. So once you once you wrote this book, did your consulting like go through the roof because everybody wanted to have these techniques? Well, it was pretty busy already, but yeah, the, the phone's been ringing happily enough for the last year or so. So uh, and speaking engagements, I imagine. Although, do you feel like people are judging you in the speaking engagements? Like, is he using his cues to to dominate the room? Yeah, it's a real nightmare for me to speak because. Uh, because when you make people consciously aware of these things, they have one of two reactions. Either they start judging you. They go, well, look, you're uh, doing this. How can you call yourself an expert, right? Or they say, well, it's obvious. I knew that all along. And either way, <laughs> I don't come across as, as, uh, as a winner. So I, I find uh, uh, speaking about it's a little bit like talking about grammar. You know, the people are going to uh, – are going to say, ah, there you go, making a grammatical mistake yourself. How can you do that? So I'm just another human being, right? My body language isn't perfect. I just know how to read other people's. And, and uh, so. so. So what's what's one more? And what's actually, what's one that you look for uh, as opposed to do? Well, um, okay, so um, one of the places where we look first to read other people um, is in the face. And, and that's natural enough. We start out as babies looking to our parents' faces to see whether we're going to get fed and, or cuddled or diapers changed or whatnot. So we're, uh, we're very uh, aware of faces. And there are four positive facial gestures, four negative facial gestures. And so what I look for in somebody that I'm working with or, or meeting for the first time or trying to, to judge is uh, I look for the balance of the positive and negative facial gestures. One of the things that people do sometimes, they've learned as grown-ups to sort of maintain neutral-looking faces, pretending interest and that kind of thing. But it's hard to uh, to keep the, uh, the eyes from narrowing, for example, or the slight frown from coming on the face when you're not really engaged. And so I look for those, the balance of those uh, eight facial gestures uh, to see how people are doing. And, and are you able to pick on all those? I mean, there's, there's eight of them. Are, are you like counting them off or it seems like it's hard to keep in the head that. No, they're so obvious. When I tell you what they are, you'll go, Oh, I knew that. Uh, they're so when you, you open your eyes wide to show interest, you raise your eyebrows to, uh, to engage with other people. Uh, you smile when you're feeling warm and friendly and you nod when you agree. And so the, and the, the other four are the opposite of that, narrowing your eyes, lowering your eyebrows, frowning and shaking your head. So they're really pretty easy to get uh, and pretty easy to notice. And one of the, one of the best unconscious ones is you'll notice if somebody's agreeing with you or not, because they tend to nod in agreement. And you know, so if there's nodding going on, that means you're getting through. If they're not nodding, then you better, up your persuasiveness. Let's you know, put it that way. I, I, I'm, I might be misquoting, but I think, um, I'm sure you've read uh, The Charisma Myth by uh, Olivia, I don't know how to say her last name, Shabane. Sure. So, so I think in that she says, um, and I don't know if she's right or wrong, but she, she, she looks for a cue that she says that people notice right away if you even look for a split second to the side instead of looking directly at you. That, that people notice when you're not paying attention, even for a split second. Do you think that's true? 
No, I don't. Um, I, I don't think that's true instantly uh, because people have all kinds of levels of eye contact. I mean, uh, um, that, that are part of their natural retinue. Some people make a lot of eye contact, but some people make less. There's quite a range. And we're not able to judge people until we've chatted with them for a while to see what their normal level of eye contact is. And so people are trained, yeah, make eye contact when you're first meeting somebody. So I tend to discount that. So I wait until I've been t talking or chatting with somebody for about 20 minutes to get a sense of what's the balance, what's their norm of making eye contact, looking away. And only then can we get a sense of uh, uh, how engaged they are. And then when the eye wanders, uh, then at that point you know that, okay, maybe they're checking out. But you can't get that at first just because you don't know them well enough and people are very different in that regard. So, so um, we've, I think we've gone through like six of your cues and I know there's seven in the book, so I'll leave it as a surprise for anybody who reads Power Cues. But just, just, to, just to summarize a little bit, if you were going if, – if you were one of the client and you were going in the room, you would focus on the, the, the posture, the standing up straight, and then the mirroring is, is one of the most important. Yeah, I'd start out, I'd start out by thinking about how open am I um, in terms of uh, my gestures, my hand gestures and arm gestures. Doing, if I'm meeting somebody and I want to establish a connection with them, I, I want to avoid putting my hands in front of my torso, clutching my hands nervously together, folding my arms, all those sort of things send out defensive gesture, gesture messages. So I want to avoid that. And I want to draw in closer to them rather than away. Uh, and so there's a whole series of, of things like that. Once you get into that personal space and you're seated, seated comfortably with somebody, then you can start mirroring. Yes, absolutely. Well, what if their hands are folded across their torso or across their legs? <laughs> I had a great, a great uh, question like this. I was, I was talking to a group of students, and, and the students got the idea of mirroring. And, and one of them said, now, I'm, I'm uh, a counselor, and so I'm working with some very depressed people. Are you saying I should mirror the person who's rolled up into a fetal position lying on the floor? <laughs> yeah, what do you do with that? And, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not coaching you on therapy. That's a different thing. Uh, I'm assuming two relatively healthy, normal people. Uh, but the answer is you should go consistent with your intent um, and your attitude, and, and you should be authentic about it. And so if you're want to open and establish a connection with a the person, then persevere, stay open. And if the person consistently throughout the whole meeting closes down, then you know, hey, it didn't work this time. That person is saying no to you for whatever reason. It's unlikely, but it can happen. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and so you don't want to be fake. You, you, you don't want to be inauthentic. You just want to keep your open game going um, because that's what you genuinely intend. So openness is maybe a little bit more important than mirroring in the first few minutes at least. In the first few minutes, you've got to be open. Uh, I, I liken it to walking down New York, the streets of New York City, and everybody's seen one of those crazy guys with the flyaway hair and the smelly clothes. And that, that's and, me. Oh, that's you. Okay. So if you come up to somebody and grab them and say, "The end of the world is coming. The end of the world is coming." In New York, what are they going to do? They'll pull away. Yeah, in New York, they'll pull away. They might even hit you, right? right. But uh, uh, so when I, I use that example because I say that's passion. That's somebody trying to connect with you. But until you send out a message that you're open, that's the first thing that has to happen. And then after that, you can start to connect and mirror. And then your passion for whatever subject it is can come through. But you have to do it in that order. So first, it's about being open. Then it's about connecting. 
So anytime you get the urge to uh, uh, just to grab somebody or to overdo it, remember the crazy guy in New York. First open, then connection. You know, one thing, um, I was once meeting somebody and my hands were across my, uh, I guess, folded across my legs or my stomach or whatever. Mm. And the guy I was meeting with said to me, you know, um, somebody taught me, he, he's saying this to me, somebody taught me that if you're in a meeting and the other person has their hands across their legs, it means that they don't like you. Uh, uh, do you not like me? Like he was just very upfront and honest about it. And I thought that worked. Like I stopped crossing my arms and I'm like, no, I, I have no problem. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it, it, he was, he was either badly coached or, or he was being a bit disingenuous because um, if somebody crosses their arms, there can be a host of reasons why they might do that. Yes, they might not like you, but they also might be nervous, right? They yeah. might like you, but be nervous. They might, uh, they might just be cold. Uh, they, um, they might have a pain in their stomach. I mean, so there's a variety of reasons. In, in that kind of situation, it's always good to be careful with body language and check it from a number of ways and make sure you're getting the right message rather than assuming that uh, it's all about you right from the go. Get-go. So the key for him maybe would have been to just continue being open, maybe lower his voice a little bit to take more command, uh, and then mirror maybe my actions that had nothing to do with the negative actions. Yeah, mirror the positive ones, sure. Um, yeah, he could have tried a little longer that way. And you can also, I mean, he could have uh, at some point said, uh, let me pause here and just check with you. How are you doing? Is this is this going the way you want it to? Are you feeling comfortable here? I mean, you can surface those kind of questions. It's just uh, it does put the other person on the spot, and and so you risk making them more uncomfortable by by drawing attention to, especially to body language. So obviously, it's much better to leave it at the unconscious level for everybody else, and you can be the Svengali who notices it and plays with it. And, uses it to your advantage. <laughs> that, that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, Nick Morgan, author of Power Cues, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And it was a pleasure reading your book. I've been dominating every room I've walked into ever since. And <laughs> life's great. <laughs> that's, that's great to hear, James. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. I'm, I'm, on the show. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Take care. Yeah, Now that's what we call done. Visit StansberryRadioChooseYourself.com to download our free report called the Choose Yourself Stories and check back daily for more Ask Altucher. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.